This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in once again today. I have got a terrific special guest joining me on today's program. In the second and third segments today, Mr. Jeff Deist will be joining me. Uh, Jeff is president of the Mises Institute. The Mises Institute, in case you are not familiar, it was named for the famed Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises, and uh, they uh, look at markets from the Austrian perspective. If you don't know what that means, stay tuned because you can learn a lot from what Mr. Deist has to say, and he's going to give you his forecast moving ahead for inflation. Now, to get started in this segment, I want to share with you a piece that former guest here on RLA Radio, Mr. John Rubino, wrote uh, recently. Uh, Mr. Rubino talks about what central banks around the world are doing. Now, we throw that term around a lot here on RLA Radio. And if you're a new listener, you may not be familiar with this whole concept of a central bank. The Central Bank of the United States is the Federal Reserve. In fact, when you hear the name Jerome Powell tossed about, Mr. Powell is actually the chair of the Federal Reserve. Now, the Federal Reserve is a private group of bankers, and this private group of bankers has been charged with setting U.S. or determining U.S. monetary policy. Now, the Federal Reserve has been in charge of setting U.S. monetary policy all the way back to 1913 when the organization was formed. Now, the Federal Reserve uses a couple different tools to try to either create some inflation or slow down inflation, which they haven't really done since the late 70s or early 80s. And the first tool that they use is interest rates. See, we operate in a fractional reserve banking system, and here's what that means. When you go put money in your bank, your banker has to reserve 10% and can loan out the other 90%. Well, it's this lending activity from banks. As money moves faster and more people are borrowing, by virtue of the fact that money is moving, more money is created. So if the Federal Reserve wants to create inflation, wants to get the economy moving again, they try to inject some new money into the economy. And one of the ways they do that is to reduce interest rates because at lower interest rates, people tend to borrow more. This is what happened after the tech stock bubble collapsed back from 2000 to 2002. Then chair uh, Alan Greenspan dropped interest rates to less than 1%. And sure enough, the economy kicked into gear again. All this newly created money went into stocks and real estate. And it only took about six or seven years, and that bubble unwound. And then Chair Ben Bernanke dropped interest rates to zero. What happened? Nothing. Crickets. So what did Mr. Bernanke do? He used the second tool, and this is a relatively new tool that the Fed has developed. He printed money. Actually, he created credit. But essentially, it's printing money to buy bonds to inject more money into the economy. Now, why didn't reducing interest rates work in 2008? Well, the simple answer is this. If you cannot afford another debt service payment, 
if you're already in debt up to your neck, you don't really care what the interest rate on the new loan is. You're simply not going to take out the loan. You're not going to borrow money. And that's where the country was collectively at the time of the financial crisis. Now we've recovered, right? Now it's time to raise rates. Well, Mr. Rubino writes about that. And with that background, let me quickly give you a bit from his article dated March 11. In fact, if you want to read this for yourself, you can go to his website. It's dollarcollapse.com. Now, in September of 2018, the European Central Bank, which is Europe's version of the Federal Reserve, decided that they were going to cut back its stimulus efforts. They were going to quit creating so much money to purchase bonds. However, before any tightening actually took place, the European economy slowed. There was trouble in Italy and France, and now the European Central Bank has decided to reverse course. They're going to continue to create money, and this decision comes just three months after the Central Bank announced it was phasing out its asset purchasing program. Now, in Japan... And in Japan, and this is how crazy things have become, Japan really pioneered or invented negative interest rates and aggressive central bank asset buying. And how does a central bank get money to buy assets like bonds? Well, they simply create it. Well, it was speculated in 2018 that the Bank of Japan would start raising rates. In fact, uh, there were a number of articles published all around the world that that was the case. Uh, the Bank of Japan's governor, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Kiroda, said that they would probably start to do a tightening. They would start to re re reverse their interest rate policy. However, recently, Mr. Kiroda said, no, we're going to keep easing. We're going to keep printing because of weak inflation. And the Fed, of course, last year decided that they would start to raise interest rates. However, Mr. Powell reduced course after the stock market dropped 20%. Now here is John Rubino's point. Here we are 10 years into an expansion Unemployment is below 5%. Officially reported inflation at the central bank uh, around the world, they're, they're at the target of 2%. And yet, he makes the point, the global economy is still too fragile to handle historically normal interest rates. He says the weakness that that implies is absolutely terrifying. He goes on to say if central banks can't normalize monetary policy now, they will never be able to. Let that sink in. The, the whole idea, the old conception of monetary policy is over for the remaining life of the current global financial system, according to Mr. Rubino. And history teaches us that when money creation starts, it takes more and more money creation to get a diminishing result. So that's the slope we're on. My question is, what have you done in your portfolio to protect yourself, to profit from this ongoing policy. 
We've got resources at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. I would encourage you to go check it out, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. I'll be back after these words. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Pleased to have joining me once again on RLA Radio, Mr. Jeff Dice. Uh, Jeff is the president of the Mises Institute. Uh, he serves as a writer, public speaker, and advocate for property markets and civil society. He previously worked as a longtime advisor and chief of staff to Congressman Ron Paul. He wrote hundreds of articles and speeches uh, while in that role. And uh, Jeff, uh, I let me take a minute just to welcome you back to the program. Glad you're with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Jeff, let's just jump in, if we could, and talk a little bit about the Mises Institute. For our listeners, maybe, that are not familiar with your work, enlighten them. Well, first and foremost, we hope that we are an antidote to what we're hearing in the financial press and in the mainstream media about economics and financial topics. Uh, we're named after a great one of the greatest, perhaps, 20th century economists, Ludwig von Mises from Austria, who wrote uh, several seminal books about socialism, about markets, about capitalism, about liberalism, true liberalism from our perspective. And unfortunately, uh, was never really given the uh, accord he deserved in his native Austria. And because he happened to be Jewish, was forced to flee that country uh, during the uh, Second War and go to Switzerland uh, ahead of the Nazis and then ultimately to the United States where he landed in New York City and continued to write uh, in, until his death. So that's, that's where our name comes from. And we're really dedicated to not just a free market perspective because there's a lot of people who say that. There's a lot of people on the right and even some on the left who say that, but really a, a, pers a, a perspective of economics that we think is, is very, very different from the mainstream. And, and what I mean by that is that uh, most of what we hear about in economics is about uh, creating demand. We hear a lot of people talk about uh, what the Fed should do, what Congress should do, what the Treasury should do, and it's always with this eye towards getting people to go out there and want more stuff. If we just get people to consume, to buy houses and buy cars, if we just get businesses hiring, and if we just uh, sort of get economic activity churning, we'll all get rich. And uh, unfortunately, that is really the lesson of economics in the 20th century. That's what John Maynard Keynes was all about, creating aggregate demand. 
and uh, even some of our friends on the right, that's what they've been all about with what is now called supply-side economics by trying to reduce, uh, you know, let's say taxes to stimulate economic activity. The problem is, is that before you buy stuff, you have to make stuff. And so the proper focus of an economy from the Austrian perspective, and there are a group of economists, Mises included among them, who hailed from Austria. So hence we have this term Austrian School of Economics. Uh, because we need to make stuff before we buy it, we need to focus on what actually makes for a productive economy, what actually makes people uh, more productive, able to, to produce goods and services at lower cost over time, more efficiently. And it turns out what, what makes that happen is capital investment. We need people to have savings, in other words, to consume less than they make, and we need businesses to have profits uh, to spend less than they bring in in revenues, and so that, that both individuals and businesses build up capital. And in, in so doing, they, they apply that capital as an investment for an individual, let's say even if you're saving your money in a bank or a mutual fund or whatever it might be. And, and as a business, hopefully you're either paying dividends to your owners or you're pouring some of that money back into capital expenditures. So those two things make capital available in an economy, and that capital allows us to create bigger and better machines and, and uh, newer and, and, and quicker devices and more effective medicines and all kinds of things. So it's, it's this process of saving of putting some money away and then using that for future capital uh, expenditures rather than just consuming everything here and now is what over time makes society rich. And, and what we've lost sight of this, unfortunately. We have this mania among politicians that, oh my gosh, if we cut interest rates enough, if we cut taxes enough, if we do X, Y, and Z, uh, you know, people will go out and buy more stuff and they'll get in more debt. And debt is not the, the, the foundation of prosperity, savings and produ productivity and capital accumulation are the foundation of a healthy economy. So un unfortunately, from our perspective anywhere, from my opinion anyway, we have our work cut out for us because what we call mainstream economics today is not really working. It's not producing much benefit for people. It's not helping them understand the world. It's not accurately predicting things like the 2008 housing crisis and stock market crash. And it's mostly just providing jobs for academic economists in universities and at places like the Federal Reserve Bank. So we, we want to take economics back. Uh, we want to strip it down and take it back to its roots as a social science that isn't based on mathematics and the, the uh, methods of the, of the physical sciences. And we want to get back to understanding and helping people understand what makes us rich because I'm afraid we've lost sight of that. And, and because of that, uh, what, all this wonderful material prosperity we see around us in the West could go away. That's, that's what people don't understand. There, there's a risk if we get too dumbed down that we'll lose the very thing that makes us rich. Jeff, you know, as you were talking and you, you, you really pointed out that the incentive to save and, and, and capital investment is so important to uh, solid economic growth, given current Fed policy, given that, you know, you, you hear the, 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 the news reports that say the dollar is stronger, but that's really strong, is stronger relative to other fiat currencies. I mean, we really have every currency in the world losing purchasing power. Uh, have we really, through, through current monetary policy, d destroyed the incentive to save? Have we destroyed the incentive to have capital investment? Well, I think we're we're on the way to doing so. I, I hear that uh, Larry Kudlow just said interest rates will never 
it will never really be higher again in our lifetimes. And the, the Fed funds rate is currently at about 2.5%. Historically, it's been more, well, you take the whole 20th century, it's been more like 5 to 10%. Um, so, yes, we have this, this mentality among not only our own Fed, but central banks around the world that, that you know, high interest rates are always bad. Well, uh, you know, they're, they're not bad if you're saving money. They're not bad if you want, let's say you're an older person on a fixed income who wants to just have safe investments like a CD or a money market fund or even a savings account at a local bank, then high interest rates aren't so bad. Uh, they're bad, of course, if you're a borrower, if you want to go buy a house or take out student loans or use credit cards. So there's two different ways of looking at this thing. And I think, I hate to say it, but I think we are in a new era where central bankers are just going to suppress interest rates indefinitely because nobody wants to nobody wants to let them rise naturally and and, and risk an economic slowdown because behind every central banker is is a is a very anxious politician like Donald Trump who doesn't want the economy uh, he- heading south. So I, I'm I'm afraid that that I think we're in this this new era of low interest rates and that's that's a, a bad thing in my view. So, Jeff, let's let's talk a little bit about you mentioned uh, debt levels, uh, and and you know our economy seems to be fueled by 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 really debt fueled consumption. To use that word a couple times, uh, private sector debt levels, I think, uh, according to the data I'm seeing, are almost back to where they were uh, prior to the financial crisis. So, um, are, are we with the, with this new interest rate policy? Are we just going to be chronically? Stuck in this in this cycle where debt purges from the system, ugly things happen to stocks and real estate, and then we build it back up again. I mean, are, are we stuck in this perpetual boom and bust cycle? In your view? Well, I think we are, and and let's let's remember that normally recessions or or depressions cause bankruptcies and insolvencies and and washing away of old debts and companies are restructured or purchased assets are purchased out of bankruptcy you have new management new boards all that sort of thing that's that's the natural cleansing process of an economic downturn unfortunately that wasn't permitted to happen in 2008 uh, our our fed working in 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 tandem with the US treasury decided that that these that these uh, wall street investment banks other than lehman brothers anyway were too big to fail and so um, both banks, insurance companies, uh, and the U.S. commercial banking system, in fact, was basically recapitalized with new money created by the Fed, and we call that QE today. So uh, it, it's a dangerous problem. The global debt levels are higher today than they were in 2007, 2008, and I mean debt held by governments, you know, national sovereign debt like our own treasury debt, uh, business debt, household debt. Automobile debt, student loan debt, credit card debt—all of these things are actually higher. So no, no, no debt problem or no, uh, you know, no, um, you know, spending problems were addressed after the 2008 crash. They were just, they were just pushed down the road, and, and they've grown since. You know, there's, uh, there's, there's talk. Uh... Jeff, about uh, this whole idea now of modern monetary theory, and I've commented in the past that it's really not modern, it's really not theory, because essentially it's it's money printing. Uh, give me your take on this whole idea that, you know, it, it, deficits don't matter, debt doesn't matter, as long as you can print your own currency and you don't have inflation, you know, who cares? Essentially, that's modern monetary theory. 
Yes, and it's basically, I, I hate to say it, it's what both parties have said in the past, but it, but, but on steroids. In other words, there's the famous quote where, where Dick Cheney said during the Bush II administration, you know, look, deficits don't matter. This was his pushback, a, a, a person considered right wing. This was his pushback to concerns about uh, growing debt because of the uh, Iraq and Afghani wars during the early 2000s. And of course, on the left, economists like Paul Krugman have, have, have long said, well, you know, these, the, the national debt doesn't really matter. It could get out of control theoretically, but it doesn't really matter. So, you know, both sides have sort of created this idea that the U.S. government can always create more money to, to pay its bills, and so we simply don't have to worry about it. And it ought to just issue money and give it to people. Um, now, most, most rational humans understand and see that as crazy, and start talking about, well, you know, won't that make all of our money worth less? And of course, the answer to that is yes. But we're in such a bizarro period, I think, of human history where we've, we've come to think that central bankers are magicians and that they can somehow overcome you know, human nature, that they can overcome laws of economics. And because the U.S. government is so big and so powerful, it can just print money and that money can flow out across the world and, and it will continue to hold its value and be accepted by everyone. Well, as you mentioned earlier in the show, yeah, the U.S. dollar is, is in pretty good shape relative to other fiat currencies. We haven't been as profligate. Uh, but the idea that you can just create money to solve problems, it, when that doesn't create any new goods or services in society, you're not making the economy more productive. You're literally just creating money that, ha that has no intrinsic value. That is, I don't, I don't know what to say to that. When I, you know, because there are serious and intelligent people discussing MMT, people who are probably far more intelligent than me. But, they, but, but to, I just don't know what to say other than it's crazy, and and it, it makes me sad that we've reached such a point of amnesia in our society that anyone could take it seriously. So, Jeff, we have a couple minutes left in this segment. Um, for our listeners that go, you know what, we can just print money. Why does debt matter? Why do deficits matter? How would you answer that question? Why does debt and why do deficits matter? Well, it, it is a good question, and, and here's why. Uh, the whole world knows that the U.S. federal government will never, ever, ever get its fiscal house in order. The whole world knows this. They know that we're never going to raise enough taxes to actually pay that 23-odd trillion dollars in past debt. Um, but here's the thing. We have an awfully big economy. We have a, a, a far-flung military, and we have a lot of political might. So as a result of that, and really the breakdown of the Bretton Woods Agreement, uh, the U.S. dollar, uh, for a variety of reasons, has become the world's reserve currency, which means all around the world, central banks and governments have a lot of dollars in their accounts. They own dollars. So on the one hand, there's plenty of people who would love to see the U.S. dollar knocked off its pedestal. But on the other hand, those same, and that may well be in the world's long-term interest or our enemy's long-term interest. But in the short term, they've all got dollars. And when I say they, I mean, I mean China, Brazil, Russia, India. Uh, they've all got dollars. So it's kind of like a game of musical chairs. Nobody wants to, to, to be left holding the bag. So while it's in the world's long-term interest that we – uh, actually pay our bills and stop being so profligate and trying to, to monetize debt. In the short term, 
they they kind of want the dollar to be propped up. So it, it's very, very, it's fascinating. There, it really is. There's never been a point in human history like this where, where people have had to worry about the status of the world's reserve currency. We've had currency crises throughout human history. We, you know, uh, e- even in the last uh, 20, 30 years in Argentina and, of course, in uh, some, in places like uh, the former, or former Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, uh, we're seeing one in Venezuela today. We've seen one uh, in in Germany and in, in, in Weimar Germany. So we have examples of what happens when a currency unravels, but we've never had an example where the the, the world's reserve currency unravels. So it's 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 very it's very scary to think about, and that's why deficits matter because if people were more rational about our ability to ever. Uh, get our fiscal house in order, they would look at us and say, look, I'm not buying any treasury debt from you guys. You guys are spendthrifts. No matter how much debt you have, you, you spend more and borrow more. So if I'm going to buy a debt, if I'm going to buy a promise from you to pay me in interest in the future, I need junk bond rates. I need 15, 20 percent because you guys are, are, are a bad risk. Uh, and, no, and no one does that, but someday they might. And, and if that day ever comes, uh, Congress is going to find its own debt service uh, blowing apart the budget. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today is Mr. Jeff Deist. Jeff is the president of the Mises Institute, and he will join us again after these words. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is Mr. Jeff Deist. Jeff is the president of the Mises Institute. I would encourage you to check out their work at Mises.org. That's M-I-S-E-S.org. And uh, you can follow Jeff on Twitter. It's Twitter at JeffDeist.com. And Deist is spelled D-E-I-S-T. So, Jeff, let's just kind of pick up where we left it off in the in the last segment. Uh, you know, we, we talk about the fact that at a certain point, uh, if the U.S. continues to be uh, just so reckless, if you will, with its uh, with its uh, spending, uh, at some point, the, the, the end game will have to come. I mean, uh, I think we're really debating not the, the if, aren't we debating the when at this point? And there's just really no better alternative to the dollar at this point? That's absolutely true. Uh, every society, every government, every culture has an end game. 
uh, the Greeks and the Romans had, had, had the Ottoman Turks all had an end game. So I suspect we will too. Uh, for, you know, but those of us, uh, you know, listening today, we have kids and grandkids and that sort of thing. And we hope that that end game is farther off rather than sooner. Uh, what, what bothers me is that we're doing our best to accelerate it. And we're, we're basically saying that the, no matter how much or how little the U.S. government brings in in taxes each year, it can spend what it needs to spend. Uh, Donald Trump is going to have trillion-dollar deficits for us. We've had trillion-dollar deficits under Obama and close to those under or near George W. Bush. And it doesn't matter because we're going to sell Treasury debt. And so enough people will buy that debt that we can continue to finance all the things that government wants to do. Most importantly for a lot of older people, which is pay Medicare and Social Security benefits, by the way. And uh, it can do these things really at no cost because the world will always buy our treasury bills. And by the world, I also mean Americans. A lot of uh, uh, pension funds and that sort of thing own treasuries. And the, the interest will stay low. As a matter of fact, we don't even much care about an inv- inverted de- yield curve. You know, even long, even 10, 20, 30-year uh, treasuries will, will have low interest. And as a result, we can, we can just basically finance the government uh, forever and ever doing this, and we don't have to worry about it. And I, I think that's false. I think that's very, very dangerous. I think it, it, it breeds a mentality where debt doesn't matter, where in, in fact, all of us know deep down on some cellular level, you know, alarm bells are going off. You can't have something for nothing indefinitely. At some point, you have to pay off debts. And that's just so uh, rational and human at, at, a, at an organic level that when people try to argue otherwise and say debt doesn't matter, or when the MMTers say, well, we can just print sovereign currency and pay our debts, um, it, you know, I don't know what to say to that. We're almost getting beyond economics at that point into, into fantasy land. So debt matters. Uh, we ought to all care about what our government's doing. And unfortunately, the only approach is a tough one, tough love. And we can talk about all the silly things U.S. federal government does with our money, like you know uh, uh, experiments on frogs at some university. But at the end of the day, the the big three items are national defense, Social Security, and Medicare. And and nobody wants to cut any of those. No politician wants to run on a platform of cutting any of those. And uh, as a you know, we don't, we seem to be obsessed with policing the world. Donald Trump's had some decent rhetoric about dialing that back, but we haven't seen any action. Uh, and as far as Social Security and Medicare go, our entitlement promises to people uh, off into the future where the, the over 65 cohort in America is set to double over the next 30 years. Uh, we have some unfunded liabilities out there to the tune of probably about $200 trillion dollars. Um, if you want to talk about the, the so-called uh, entitlement gap. So that's very, very scary to me. An awful lot of people are counting on having Social Security and Medicare in their old age. And if we don't get off this path, uh, that's, that's going to be very iffy. And I think not, not 100 years from now, uh, a lot sooner than that. So, Jeff, as you're talking, it just occurs to me that um, as this 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 money creation, this 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 creating money out of thin air uh, trend gains traction, and assuming it's it's implemented even a greater extent, doesn't that just cry out that you want to have a good share of your investments or a good share of your portfolio in tangible things like gold, for instance, pops to mind? 
Yeah, it's so, so true. It's difficult for Americans. If you're very wealthy, if you're a Ray Dalio, a billionaire hedge fund manager, you can diversify your assets politically. You can hold assets in foreign countries. You can hold assets in foreign currencies. Um, you can even hold real estate in foreign countries. So you can, you can, and you can probably buy yourself some foreign passports. So you can diversify yourself against political risk. The, the average American investor uh, can't do that. We're going to own things that are denominated in dollars, whether that's our mutual funds, uh, stocks, you know, U.S. real estate, whatever it might be. So it's 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 very very uh, difficult to to get out from under that dollar risk because no matter what you own, if it's priced in dollars and you own it, it you know it's uh, accounted for in dollars, you you risk you know uh, being subjected to what I think is going to be uh, an, an ugly loss of, of purchasing power in the future. So what can you do against that? You know, look, everyone's always looking for a world currency. We need a world, you know, we need the same currency. Well, we've had one of those for thousands of years. It's called gold. And, you know, the, the question then becomes, what are your time horizons? If you only care about a return on investment over the next 10 years, gold's probably bad for you. <laughs> if you, you know, if, but if you're thinking about your grandkids, um, then, you know, time and imperfect knowledge, but, but, but history tells us that gold is always worth something. Uh, gold never goes to zero. And uh, it's awfully hard to say that about anything else you might own. So do you see at some point, Jeff, with, with, with you know, everything going on in the world, I mean, as you said, we live in times that are just crazy. I mean, you, it's, it's hard to imagine that I think there's $9 trillion or the equivalent of $9 trillion of sovereign debt now around the world actually earning negative interest rates. So we're seeing things that are just Crazy. Do, do you anticipate that there will be at some point in the future some country, given what we just talked about, that will say, you know what, we're going to tie our currency back to gold? Yes, I certainly hope so. And I think they will be, on the one hand, richly rewarded by people around the world who are nervous about their fiat currencies and, and, and that money will flow into that currency. Um, they, they might also be quite threatened by some of the world powers, uh, in, including the United States government, uh, for attempting to do such a thing. Because what's, what's so interesting is that while the world is becoming more and more decentralized, the way we do business, the way we communicate, the way we teach university classes, the way uh, old hub-and-spoke distribution models are, are now replaced by this kind of networky Amazon model, you know, all of these things represent decentralization. Of, uh, of of life, but the, the the government types are going the other direction. They're saying that more and more sovereignty needs to be needs to be uh, uploaded from you know na nation states to the EU, from the US to the UN, from central banks to the IMF. Uh, so our elite leaders are obsessed with centralizing everything, and part of that plan, uh, I think, involves the the creation of a world, an actual currency, a world reserve currency to match the IMF special drawing rights, because I think what's going to happen is if we have another big crisis and the whole world gets the flu, they're going to say, "See, 
we, we can't have all these sovereign uh, in, individual states with their own central banks operating willy-nilly. We have to have this coordinated by one global central bank, or at least a backstop central bank, uh, to, to sort of coordinate all this because, you know, as we see now, uh, allowing individual sovereignty allows a, a particular nation, let's say the U.S., uh, to, to go out and do whatever it wants, and then it, it, it affects everyone. So that that's what I fear. Uh, that's what that's what uh, I think the future might hold, and I think that'll be suggested uh, very quickly uh, if we have another crisis, anything approaching the magnitude of, of 2008, 2009. It's uh, it's very very interesting to me. Um, if if anyone's interested in what the IMF is up to and what special drawing rights might mean, uh, there's a guy named James Rickard who uh, has written quite a bit on this. So if you look him up, <laughs> you'll, uh, you, you'll, you might want to take your blood pressure medicine before you read him. <laughs> well, actually, uh, Mr. Rickards has been a past guest on this program, so uh, uh, many of our long-term, long-time listeners have, uh, are familiar with him. So, Hey, uh, unfortunately, Jeff, we are out of time. We're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. Jeff Deist. Uh, he is the president of the Mises Institute. You can check out their work at Mises.org, and you can follow Jeff and on Twitter, it's Twitter at JeffDice.com. And uh, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. We would love to have you back again. I very much appreciate it, Dennis. We will return after these words. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Welcome back to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen, and I want to stop just for a moment and thank our special guest, Mr. Jeff Deist from the Mises Institute, for joining us on today's program. In this segment, I want to discuss with you a topic that I believe probably affects most of our listeners. If you're putting money away in a retirement account, an IRA or a 401k, I want to chat with you about a reality. The reality is that you will pay taxes on the assets in your IRA or 401k when you take it out. The question is not if you will pay the tax. The question is when you will pay the tax. Now, if you look at current tax law, we have a law that went into effect last year in 2018, 
We have lower individual income tax rates through tax year 2025. When the tax law was passed, business and corporate tax cuts were made permanent. However, individual tax cuts were only approved for eight years. You may have some opportunities to save taxes on your retirement account like your IRA or 401k. Now, forgive me if what I am going to mention here sounds a bit cynical, but according to the Investment Company Institute, at the end of the fourth quarter of 2017, total retirement plan assets totaled $28.2 trillion. $28.2 trillion according to the Investment Company Institute, is invested in retirement accounts. Now, many of you, if not most of you, are familiar with the fact that our national debt today is about $22 trillion. Now, the question I would pose to you is this. There's $28 trillion in retirement plan assets, and there's total national debt of $22 trillion, it's pretty interesting how closely those numbers are correlated. Now, that doesn't mean that the fiscal issues of the United States stop with just the national debt because Social Security is underfunded, significantly underfunded. According to the Social Security Program's trustee report, it would take more than $17 trillion to shore up the Social Security system. In fact, If you've had a chance to look at your Social Security earnings statement recently, you know the system. This is revealed on page four of your statement. You can go look at it. You can go to ssa.gov and download it. But on page four of your statement, it will tell you that the system, the Social Security system, that is, has about 76% of the assets that it needs to pay all promised benefits. Now, of course, that assumes the Social Security Trust Fund actually exists. And the fact is, the Social Security Trust Fund exists on paper, but not in reality. See, the bonds that make up the Social Security Trust Fund have no redemptive value. To say there's money in the Social Security Trust Fund is just like writing yourself a check for $1 trillion and declaring yourself to be the world's first trillionaire. That trillion dollars exists on paper only. There's nothing backing it since you don't have a trillion dollars in your checking account. That's also true of the Social Security Trust Fund. The money's not there. It's an accounting procedure only. Now, if you add the national debt to the funds needed to fully fund the Social Security system, we have a $38 trillion problem. And that doesn't count the underfunding of Medicare. But to get to my point, let me ask a question. Given these numbers that one can only describe as astronomical, do you think the Washington politicians collectively will be able to resist the nearly $30 trillion in retirement accounts down the road? After all, to capture a greater percentage of retirement plan assets, you just have to increase income tax rates. That would mean that Washington automatically lays claim to more of your retirement account balance. 
Now, the reality of the matter is that politicians have nearly a perfect track record when it comes to tinkering with the tax code. So much so that I would say the only thing we know for sure is that change will happen. And typically when these changes happen, the changes are not in favor of the taxpayer. And don't think that just because a particular tax rule has been in effect for a long time that it can't change. There have been many times in history, as well as in other countries, when long-standing tax rules have been suddenly and radically changed. In fact, at one time in U.S. history, the income tax was declared to be unconstitutional. It's an interesting side story as to how the income tax came back into being. It was 1895 that the Supreme Court of the United States declared the income tax to be unconstitutional. But in 1909, the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was proposed that would allow Congress to levy an income tax. The 16th Amendment was ratified in 1913, and that's when the income tax became a reality. But at first, it affected only a very small group of wealthier citizens, and that's exactly how the income tax was passed. In fact, we're hearing the same rhetoric today. Back in 1909 to 1913, which is the time it took to ratify the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, the politicians played one class against another and promoted the income tax as something that would affect only the rich. The initial income tax rate was 1%, and only 1 in 217 people were affected. But it didn't take long for that to change. About 20 years later, 1 in 32 citizens paid a 4% tax rate, and by 1943, 1 in 3 wage earners were affected. Tax withholding was the golden key that allowed the politicians to confiscate a greater portion of each worker's earnings. If a worker didn't have to write a check for his or her taxes, but taxes were instead withheld from the worker's paycheck, politicians figure out it was a lot easier to collect taxes. So what began as a way to make the rich pay their fair share now affects even part-time workers below the poverty line as FICA taxes are withheld from their pay. Now, my point is this. You have income tax savings opportunities potentially in your IRA or 401k. The new tax law, in effect, through tax year 2025, actually has tax rates about 3% lower across the board. And in some of the tax brackets, you'll find that the thresholds at which the tax rates increase have also been generously increased. So if you have an opportunity to take money out of your IRA now, maybe do a Roth conversion, and for those of you that are not familiar with how a Roth IRA works, a Roth IRA is tax-free. The money you put into a Roth is taxable. However, when you take money out, it's tax-free. It's the polar opposite of a traditional IRA or 401k. When you put money in an IRA, you get a tax deduction for what you put in. However, in exchange for taking that deduction on your tax return, the IRS is now a joint investing partner with you on that retirement account for as long as you live. 
Anyone that has money in a traditional IRA or 401k has the ability now to do a Roth conversion. You can convert that IRA, which will have all withdrawals taxed during the course of your lifetime, to a Roth IRA if you're willing to pay tax on the conversion. That that transforms that account rather from something that is taxable to something that is tax-free. And here is the big, big point of this segment. When you retire and you collect Social Security, if the withdrawals from your IRA are large enough, many people will end up adding $1.85 to their taxable income for every dollar they take out of a retirement account due to the way Social Security is taxed. So you have an opportunity to do some tax planning on your retirement accounts. We talk about that at our events. Uh, As I am uh, on the air today and as I'm recording this program this past week, we talked about it at an event with some folks. If you want to sign up for our newsletter, the events are outlined there. Uh, You can go to rla.yourportfoliowatch.com and sign up for our free newsletter. The website is rla.portfoliowatch.com. That's our program for this week. Thanks for tuning in.